It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to, lots to talk about. It's uh, it's it's Davos week. Uh, yeah, Davos 2024. The World Economic Forum having their big powwow at this, the, that exclusive ski resort there in Switzerland where our corporate elites and our political elites come together and decide how they're going to uh, engineer and, and, and figure out how to deal with each other. And what I love about this week is, you know, a lot of the conspiracy theory, lots of that. Uh, we get how you know they're taking over the world. Uh, but I also like you, you get to find out uh, all of the how, how bad things are going, how bad of a job they're actually doing uh, for us. And uh, one of the latest reports come out from the folks over at Oxfam. Uh, they have come out and said that the, the five richest men in the world, five, uh, they've doubled their fortunes to $869 billion uh, between the, the five of them. So in, in one car, you could have you know people who are worth almost a, a trillion dollars. Whereas the, uh, the 60% of the poorest people in the, in the, in the, on the planet, uh, about 5 billion people, they've all, they've all lost money. They've all, they've all gotten worse off. So, hey, our handful, they're doing literally a handful. They, they are doing better at the expense of the 5 billion. So you 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 have one here, one billion, two here, two billion. You get it. Uh, our super rich doing really really well. So you know I look at this big powwow and I go, uh, it's it's not working. If the goal is stakeholder capitalism, if the goal is to ensure that um, you know we care about you know all of the stakeholders, you know the the workers, the shareholders, the customers, the communities, all of this. You're doing a pretty bad job. Not not good. Not good. Uh, but today on the program, we're going to talk with Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy. And what I like about Chris Murphy, I think this guy could be the, the Teddy Roosevelt of this generation. Uh, the guy who's going to come out and say, look, you know, uh, we're going to fight and make sure that, uh, you know, workers have an opportunity to make a decent wage. Uh, that we're, the prosperity is shared, but democracy is saved. That people feel that there's there's some hope, that they have some say, they have a way to move forward. And I love the fact that he was one of the people participated last week with the Teamsters, uh, with the Amazon drivers. In fact, he wrote a letter to the Amazon CEO saying, "Hey, your uh, delivery service partner drivers, uh, this ain't this ain't working." Uh, he wrote a letter saying. Uh, we write to express concern regarding reports that Amazon inflicts persistent mistreatment on its delivery service partner drivers and to re request further information regarding Amazon's DSP program. Uh, he writes Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, 
Help Committee Chairman Senator Sanders recently launched an investigation into the abysmal safety record in Amazon's warehouses and the company's mistreatment treatment of workers who are injured in those warehouses in response to growing public body of reporting, expert analysis, and constituent concern shared with our offices. We are conducting similar but distinct oversight into Amazon's DSP program. Now, what I found interesting in his letter that was signed by uh, 24 senators, including three Republicans, is he writes, Amazon's freight truck drivers haul a variety of goods across highways every day, and their branded delivery vehicles are virtually unavoidable feature in neighborhoods all over the country. Through nearly all Americans, they're familiar with and reliant on the services of Amazon branded vehicles, which are operated by drivers in Amazon branded vests who exclusively deliver packages with big, bold Amazon labels. Few realize that Amazon refuses to acknowledge the workers who operate these vehicles as its legal employees. This, a big freaking deal. Uh, this is saying, look, you know, we're going to look into this, this employment pra practice, this misclassification of people. You're driving a big, big vehicle, says Amazon on it. You're wearing the clothes, say Amazon on it. You're pointing people going, say, do that job. Deliver our box. It says the A on it. But you're not our employee? Um, yeah, you, you want to start talking about what we can do to make a more equal country, a more equal society? Let's start with simple things like not letting employers screw over workers and misclassify them. Let's start with that. Let's start with these big behemoth corporations not screwing over working people. Let's start with that. Uh, they write, an overwhelming body of reporting suggests this system of control without responsibility exacts an awful toll on the drivers. Drivers have been made to work in extreme heat without air conditioning, forced to make deliveries in the snow without proper safety equipment like snow chains, snow tires and chains, and are often pressured to skip breaks. In some instances, drivers have been forced to work for nearly 12 hours without access to a restroom. Yeah, we know all this stuff. But Chris Murphy and these other folks, they're the ones who are going to be willing to step forward and say, you know what? We are going to change things. And when we come back, Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy is going to be here to talk about how we're going to bust up these, these big conglomerates, how we're going to return competition back to the workplace, into our economy, and more importantly, democracy back to America. Quick break, right back. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1898. That was the day workers in the textile mills of New Bedford, Massachusetts, walked out on strike. They were organized along craft lines into five different unions. Regardless of craft, mill owners inflicted a 10% wage cut, which would prove devastating given the fact that whole families worked in the mills. When the wage cut took effect, spinners effectively shut down 22 mills.
mills owned by nine companies. Having formed an amalgamated strike committee, weavers, loom fixers, carters, and slasher tenders all stayed away in support. Workers, leaders like Samuel Gompers, Eugene V. Debs, and Daniel DeLeon of the Socialist Labor Party all visited the strikers to give encouragement and inspiration. Debs alone acknowledged the role of women in the strike as workers and not just as wives, mothers, daughters, or sisters. Before the strike, there had already been discord over strike demands. The weavers insisted on adding the fines issue. They constituted 40% of mill workers and their job duties included correcting the mistakes of other trades. Manufacturers routinely fined weavers for material deemed imperfect, yet still profited from selling their products. The fine system wrought havoc on weaver families, and they wanted it abolished. The rest of the unions sympathized with their plight, but insisted the strike would fail unless they focused solely on the issue of wage cuts. The weavers persisted and the demand stuck. By April, the strike collapsed. Workers went back with nothing gained. But the strike proved that workers across craft lines could strike and support each other in an industrial manner. It also proved that men and women workers could effectively organize a strike and pick it together. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Labor History in 2. So for quite some time, I've been asking the uh, simple question, who's going to be this generation's Teddy Roosevelt? Who's going to be the guy who you know, starts breaking up some of these giant corporations, starts bringing competition back uh, to our economy? And, and that idea of returning reward to work. Uh, you know, we, we've been talking about this for a very long time, and, and finally we're starting to see some movement. And, you know, someone in the Senate caught my attention. Excellent, uh, excellent speech recently. Meeting with Amazon drivers, um, you know, doing the, the groundwork. And that's why I've asked Senator Chris Murphy to come spend a little time with us, share some thoughts on the direction and where we need to be going if we're going to actually, oh, I don't know, do what I've been saying, and that is return reward to work and rebuild that prosperous working class of our grandparents' generation. Senator Murphy, thanks for taking time for us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So, you know, I've been talking about this for quite some time. We've been watching consolidation. We've been watching industry after industry consolidate. We've been watching monopolies spring up around us. And it doesn't seem like anybody's paying attention to the little guy. People are losing jobs. Wages have been stagnant for so long. I think a lot of the anger of the country is things are getting harder for folks. And and it comes down to uh, it's the economy, stupid. Yeah, I mean, listen, this has been you know happening for a long time. It's not the first time in American economic history in which you've seen a rapid, massive consolidation of economic power. You've seen a massive, massive transfer of wealth um, from the middle of the country uh, to the elites in the country. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no doubt that, you know, this country is going to explode unless we do something about the fact that you have... Um, non-competitive market after non-competitive market. Um, and, and Rick, I'll tell you why I've come to care about this. I mean, I haven't spent my lifetime working in and around antitrust policy and, and, uh, and, and questions and arguments around consolidated power. Um, I've spent the last year and a half you know, really trying to examine why America is, you know, it feels like it's coming apart at the edges, feels like it's coming apart at the seams, you know, high rates of suicide and self-harm and overdose and violence and, you know, just people generally feeling really crappy. Um, and you know, I think one of the big reasons is that folks feel like you know, they're powerless in this economy. 
that all of the decisions that matter most to them are being made by these giant economic monoliths that are totally unaccountable to them. The most important decisions that matter to them are being made by Amazon and Google and Facebook, not their state government and their national government. And they feel totally helpless. And so this argument to break apart monopoly power, yes, it's about returning dignity to work and raising wages and lowering prices, but it is also about just giving regular people out there a sense that the decisions that are being made that matter most to them are being made closer to them, are being made by you know small businessmen that they can touch and feel rather than these enormous um, antiseptic, hard to reach um, uh, you know, corporate conglomerates. And so I think this is part and parcel of an effort to try to restore some spiritual health to the country, to break up these centers of enormous economic power. I don't disagree with you. And I've been saying, you know, since 2016 and the rise of Donald Trump, that the despair and the anger and the frustration comes from the economic part of it, that people are struggling. But also, as you've pointed out, people feel powerless. They, they feel that no one is listening to them and that, you know, believe it or not, uh, they some feel that, that Trump was was listening or heard them, had his thumb on the pulse of that anger and used it in a way that catapulted him to the White House. Yeah, and, and listen, I think people know what they want. They don't always know exactly how to get there. So, you know, one of the things that has eroded over the course of the last 20 years is the health of our local communities. We, 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 you know, we have a pride in the places that we live, but those places are not healthy any longer. You have vacant downtowns, you have, you know, dead commercial districts, uh, the places where we, you know, had pride in, but we also used to meet we used to um, come together um, are are just non-existent in the way that they were. And that is a consequence of the Amazonification of our economy. As, as Amazon and Google essentially dominate uh, retail commerce, uh, the consequence is the local mom and pop retailers that just don't exist any longer. Pretty soon, your local supermarket will be out of business because everybody is going to be getting their groceries delivered to them by some giant multinational food distribution company. And so people want healthier places. And the only way to get healthier places is to break up enormous economic power so you have a better shot for small businesses, local businesses, and truly unique local economies to thrive. And so people you know, ha have all these things that, they, um, that they're wistful for. Right. And Donald Trump speaks to that. Right. Make America great again. And, and, and we've got to have some answers as to bring back the parts of America that were legitimately good, yeah. like vibrant, unique downtowns and commercial districts. No, you're, that's you're spot about on. Power. No, back in, you know, before the 2020 election, we did a, a month long um, working class heroes radio tour. And we went to a lot of places that used to be. They used to be recognized for something that they produced, and now they're hollow shells of what they what they used to be. You know, you go into Akron, Ohio, used to be the the rubber capital of the world, Toledo, the glass capital, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, rubber. You know, uh, Atumwa, Iowa. You know, uh, the meatpacking. There was all of these places that that was their pride. That was that was what they were known for. And those places, in a lot of that, in that, in those places, that's gone. And what's replaced those industries of what they were known for, what they produced and what was their identity are now 
you know, drug treatment centers and and you know all all of the the poverty, you know, your dollar stores, your you know your your pawn shops, your, your, all all of that stuff, and and the, the the despair and the anger and the frustration that comes with it. And you're right, people want want that that sense of of purpose, that sense of of pride in their community back. And and I got to tell you, and this isn't pandering. Uh, I'm looking at the investments that are being made in manufacturing that we're actually starting to reshore some of this. And I think if we start breaking up some of these big conglomerates and we start re- restoring competition back so that mom and pop and the, a local local person can start into an industry and give them an opportunity, I think we can we can restore some of that pride back to, to local communities. No, 100%. I mean, I... You know, I represent Connecticut when I was in the Congress. I represented Northwest Connecticut. And, you know, in Northwest Connecticut, we have Danbury, the hat city, Waterbury, the brass city, Meriden, the silver city, New Britain, the hardware city, right? These were places whose very identity was connected to the thing they made, right? Um, and, and, and the pride of that community was connected to the thing that they made. We came, uh, you know, we came to the conclusion 30 years ago that we didn't have to make things any longer that we could become a did a we come to that conclusion did, we did, did i mean listen, did we have a conversation did. around that but i would tell you republican and democratic elites came to that conclusion and they were wrong and washington was consumed for a period of time with this idea right that we could become a service sector and financial sector economy they were wrong and we are finally finally realizing the error of our ways and as you mentioned thanks to president biden we are putting enormous new resources back into industrial policy and we are rebuilding factories and we are rebuilding industrial capacity and 10 20 years from now there will be cities with new names right cities that identify themselves with making products connected to the next economy and that's really exciting but we went through about 30 or 40 years where we were headed in a very very bad direction no i grew up in cleveland ohio where um, you know manufacturing was the was the game. You had auto plants, you had feeder plants, you had steel. Uh, making stuff was the pride. It was a solid blue cl- blue collar city. And sadly, uh, I watched, I had a front row seat to all of those jobs going away and being, well, they didn't go, we didn't lose them. We know exactly where they went. They went to China and Mexico and other cheap, cheap labor places. Because as you pointed out, neoliberalism, we have all this, this trade policy. So no, no, make it somewhere else, bring it back here and we'll buy it and you can make large profits off of it. Um, and I'm hoping we're, we're we're changing a little bit. I'm hoping you're right and that President Biden is moving us in that direction. Um, but I had a front row seat to it and it, it was not it was not good for families. It was not good for communities. So I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping there are folks like you in the Senate who are, who are balling up the digits and getting in there and fighting for us. And listen, this was a ruse perpetuated on us. Um, by the sort of Wall Street corporate class. Uh, I mean, neoliberalism was great for Wall Street, who could arbitrage internationally. Uh, Neoliberalism was great for big multinational corporations um, who benefited from being able to offshore all of that work. It was terrible for the American worker and it was terrible for the American family. It's gonna take a long time to rebuild. Um, The CHIPS Act is kind of the template, right? This was the, you know, the bill passed with bipartisan support that put some, um, some public money uh, next to private money to rebuild the microchip industry in the United States. But in order to rebuild these critical industries, you're going to have to partner together some public dollars and some private dollars. The private sector can't do it by themselves. And so whether the sort of next front is battery technology or you know bringing some of the medicine production back to the United States, we're just going to have to rebuild industry after industry 
in the United States. That's good for national security policy, um, and it's good for the spiritual health and the economic health of this country. And I can yeah. see a handful of Republicans, not enough, but a handful of Republicans starting to you know, buy into the, the, the belief that we have to get this done. But at the end of the day, it's it's the working people of this country who who, who buy into this. I, I you know, I, I, when we did our tour, it didn't matter which hat you were wearing, red hat, blue hat. It didn't matter. Uh, and most of the people I talked to, they were ready to put the red hats and the blue hats down and pick up a hard hat and rebuild because they understood, look, we're too dependent on the rest of the world, particularly China, for the things that we get. We're too dependent on, on everyone else for our our ability to defend ourselves, to feed ourselves, uh, to get the medicines we need, and that we do need an industrial policy. And, and, and again, this is where I give Joe Biden credit. Uh, for the first time in my lifetime, there has been a positive domestic uh, in, industrial policy on, under the uh, guise of domestic production for domestic consumption. And it's about time. Yeah, and, and, and I think you are exactly right. That There is, you know, I sort of think about it as there's there's a, a hidden political realignment in this country, right? We are so used to right and left being defined by issues like uh, choice or guns or climate, and those fights will still exist. But there's a whole nother set of issues in which that traditional right and left have violent agreement. <laughs> and rebuilding American manufacturing is part of that violent agreement regulating technology like social media to protect our kids is part of that violent agreement frankly raising wages right increasing the minimum wage there's violent agreement between sort of traditional right and left on that you've seen referendums passed to raise minimum wages in red states and and we've just been really blind to this realignment between traditional right and left on mostly economic and 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 competitiveness and anti-monopoly issues we should stop being blind to it and go out and try to organize it and midwife it into real change for Absolutely. real people. No, I've been saying for the longest time, if we're going to reunite this country, we've got to reunionize this country, get people back into the workplace, organizing, fighting for better wages, hours, conditions, making better lives. And then we can we can fit, fight and bicker over the stuff on the on the on the extremes, on the fringes. But it's about making better lives. It's about keeping roofs over heads, food on tables and giving people families opportunities, health care, job security, the, the meat and the meat and potatoes stuff first, and then and then the other stuff. Look, I'm I'm on board with all the other stuff, but for me, it's it's got to be you know down the down the middle of the fairway, down the middle of the road. However, you're going to frame that. Uh, that's where we should be spending our time, and this is where I think the president has done a very good job. And I and I don't want to pander too much, but I think he has done a good job in 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 ushering the economy back in that direction to where we are. We are, 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 look, I look at the people that he's put into positions uh, of regulatory bodies, of oversight. I look at the, the people he's got at the National Labor Relations Board. I look at people at the Department of Labor, at the FTC. Uh, you know, I'm thrilled with the people he's got in place to maybe start doing the things that we need to do, maybe to start doing the things you're talking about, breaking up some of these trusts, giving uh, some of these big companies, going after some of this stuff. Uh, do you share my hope and optimism? Well, I do, you know, and, and you know, you look at maybe the most pilloried of all of his appointments, um, Lena Khan, who's the head of the FTC. Why is she such a target? Because she is coming after these corporate interests, right? She has said, enough is enough. Google, Amazon, um, these big medical companies, they have way too much power and it's time to break them up and return power to regular people. And for that, the Wall Street class is coming after her with a laser beam. 
Um, and so I just believe that Biden understands that you can't fix what is spiritually broken in this country yeah. without taking power from the folks who have tons of it and distributing it out to the rest of average America that has very little of it. And that's about regulatory changes. That's also about empowering unions. And he's both talk the talk and walk the walk on both of those fronts. So last question I've got for you. Uh, you know, how do we take all of this that you've, you've laid out here and, and message this better uh, for Democrats to get out on the stump and say, look, you know, we're moving in the right direction. The economy's getting on the, on the straight and narrow. We're going to reshore manufacturing. We're going to make manufacturing a larger share of, of GDP for the probably the first time in, in 70 years. We're, we're, we're heading in the right direction. Stay the course, because uh, one election, it all goes away. Uh, how do how do we do that? How do we how do we start? How do we get that messaging out to the people who are angry at where we are and do want to see uh, you know, big these big monopolies broken up? That that Biden's the guy. How, how do you do that? Well, you know, this election will be a choice, and you know, the benefit is that you know there, you don't have to sort of guess what a Trump administration is going to be like because we saw it. And when Joe Biden uh, won the election, um, he put all his energy behind breaking up corporate power raising wages for regular people and rebuilding American industry. Those are the pieces of legislation that he passed. When Donald Trump was president, he spent all of his time and effort trying to pass a giant tax cut for corporations and for his billionaire friends. That is the sum total of Donald Trump's domestic agenda was tax cuts for super rich people and super big corporations. Um, Joe Biden's domestic agenda was all about breaking up those big companies and returning power to regular people. I just think we have to continue to make that contrast for folks. There you go. Senator Murphy, I appreciate you taking time for us. Uh, I hope you'll come back and, and share with us uh, as this campaign continues and as we, we, we reunite and reunionize this country. Love it. Thanks, Rick. Senator Chris Murphy, I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. Tell me what you think. Uh, right back after this. Stick around. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show. We're working people. Come to talk. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work... For America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, the good folks over at the Alabama Policy Institute have released their wish list for the coming year. And, and <laughs> oh, not surprising, not surprising, children. Yes, children are on the list. Yeah, they want child labor. Get rid of those onerous, those onerous child labor laws. In Alabama, yep, got to get those child labor laws out of the way. Get those kids into the workforce because, hey, we got child labor law shortage, child labor shortage. So the solution to that that labor shortage or that cheap labor shortage, go get those kids. But, no, hey, just don't get those kids into the workforce, uh, but also make sure that um, they make fewer medical decisions and, well, um, we don't want them reading things. Want to make sure that we we shield them from certain stuff, you know, over here, 
but into the workforce anytime whatsoever. Yeah. Good stuff uh, for our folks watching on Free Speech TV. Thanks so much for tuning in for our radio affiliates. We're going to be right back with, with more on, well, cheap labor in Alabama. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So I'm going to start off with an email from Andrew. And if you want to email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com, that's how you get a hold of me. And I answer all emails personally and sometimes use use them here on the program. But Andrew writes, uh, I'd like to say this is a joke, but he says the advantage of having kids working and out of school is the kids working won't be subject to school shootings. He said, a sick side of me wonders if it's safer to have kids in school or at work. And that's an interesting question. Is it safer? We regulate the workplace somewhat. Uh, we have, you know, some, you know, some regulations, some inspectors. Uh, you know, we have some control, some bits. Uh, but now you've got a, a wave going on across this country of right-wing think tanks and right-wing organizations, the moneyed interest, the corporatists, and religious groups pushing this. Because, you know, we got to teach you know, kids responsibility. You know, spare the rods, boil the child. You know, that, that kind of stuff. And I look at, I look at this, this Alabama Policy Institute. Yes, one of the state policy network, one of the Koch brothers moneyed institutes uh, that have littered this country with bad ideas, terrible policy, and destructive ideas for the working class. But hey, heavily, heavily funded and, you know, staffed with some of the best, smartest people, uh, the best brains, the smartest people, the most creative uh, degenerates you're ever going to meet in trying to figure out how to destroy the working class and 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 really create an environment of more for the the handful and less for everyone else and you know is it surprising inequality is at an all-time high when you have really a web of of bad ideas coming out of places like this Alabama Policy Institute and understand every state don't don't get uppity don't don't think you're special if you don't live in Alabama, because I guarantee there is a crazy right wing think tank in your backyard thinking up bad ideas for your state as well. And I'm sure there's a document much like the 2024 blueprint for Alabama that this week dropped on the good folks in Alabama that that set the, the priorities for what the right wants to destroy Alabama with even further. Uh, but this one. Uh, they've got their their set of 30 policy priorities, and right at the very top of it is removing, uh, you know, employment barriers for 14 and 15 year olds, helping them join the workforce. Because you know, uh, you know, you know, filling out that that eligibility form for the school, you know, to ensure that kids are showing up to school and doing their work, and and they're not behind. You know, that's just as they put it, you know, just just too much. It's too far. It's a hindrance. It's too hard for work for teenagers to then join the labor force. So it's got to go, of course. Now understand, Alabama is one of the lowest wage states in the country. Um, 
why do you need more cheap labor? Because corporate America needs cheap labor. They always need cheap labor. So here you have part of the 2024 blueprint of, hey, how do we get more cheap labor for corporate America? How do we ensure that, uh, that we keep that steady supply going into the veins of capitalism while simultaneously uh, sticking it to the people that we're shoving into those veins? You know, the kids. Uh, because while they're forcing, they want, they want kids to get into the workforce, uh, they're also creating barriers. Now, again, tearing down those barriers because they're, 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 they're against regulation. Tear down those walls. Tear down those barriers, except for if you for making medical decisions. Now, this is, this is solely, you, you know where this comes from. This is, we don't want those transgenders. Uh, you know, making decisions. So then it, this becomes a broad brush thing. This now becomes, uh, you can't make any decisions. And currently, as I understand, in the state of Alabama, 14-year-olds can make medical decisions for themselves. Uh, the, the 2024 blueprint for Alabama will raise that age. They just don't say how high, but they want to raise that age above 14. But you can go work in the, in the workforce. You can go work in that slaughterhouse. Uh, also, they're going to put some 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 barriers in front of what books you read, what books you can take out of the library. So again, you can go work in that slaughterhouse, you can go go killing stuff, but how dare you read a book about you know, you know things? This is how this is how weird this stuff starts to get. And and look, it's not just not, it just doesn't stop there. Uh, I argue that the assault on child labor laws is a direct assault on public education as a whole, especially for poor kids. This is an assault on poverty. This is an assault on education. And it's an assault on public education. Because also in this document, while they're going after, and hey, let's get that cheap labor going, uh, they want educational freedom, which we know what this is, this is moving towards. It's all the bad ideas that we've seen all around the country. Things like education savings accounts, things like uh, charter schools, things like cyber charter schools, things like uh, you know uh, the, the tax credits that you give to the private schools, vouchers, I'm sure, are on the way. Uh, the bad ideas of, hey, let's pay parents to homeschool their kids. That's a great idea. We'll pay them to homeschool their kids, and then they can put them into the workforce and make money off the school district by pretending that, that the job. The perfect, the perfect answer here is, uh, and, and we saw some of this in Iowa, where you know setting up apprenticeship programs you know, relieves corporate America of any liabilities, which is great because if they get hurt on the job, well, it's nobody's fault, really. Oops, going to have that. Question is, is how much more of this do we put up with? Also part of the, uh, the, the 2024 blueprint for Alabama, as if Alabama doesn't have enough problems. Uh, they're going. They want to push for prohibiting drag shows. Who cares? Uh, resisting Medicaid expansion. Yeah, because why would you want to help poor people and and help you know working class folks uh, get the health care that they need? Why would we want to do that? Uh, they also want to end the diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at public edu at public universities. And again, more assaults on public education. Uh, and and are we surprised? 
And the answer, quite frankly, is no, this is who they are. Uh, but any of this, and this is my problem with, with all of these, these programs that these folks trot out, any of this going to make people's lives better? Is this going to help put food on the table? Is this going to help, you know, keep a roof over people's head? And the answer is no, that's not what this is for. What these think, tank, think tanks are masterful at, they focus group test, they think tank approve all of the Republican Party's pro policy ideas. And their policy ideas aren't about making lives better. They're about making politics better for Republicans so that they have issues to be able to run around, not solve. And we look at the immigration issue as a perfect example. Look what Republicans just said. We're going to do nothing, nothing on immigration until Donald Trump is president. That means there's, there's nothing going to happen for another year other than hearing Republicans talk about how bad a problem is when they have the ability to go into the House and do the work of crafting legislation to be able to, to solve a problem. And as I've been saying on this program for a very long time, these aren't solution-based These aren't solution -based people. These are problem-creating people. The people that are in our, in, our, in our political system right now, they're all about creating problems to be able to point out, to go, hey, look at, look at how bad the other guy is. Look at these problems. Send us money. Not, hey, help us fix this. Not, hey, uh, let's figure out how to, how to, how to, how to deal with this. Because guess what? This is the interesting part of this. Uh, immigration could help us with our quote-unquote labor shortage. If we truly had a labor shortage, and in some of the jobs that, that they want kids to do, we kind of do have a labor shortage. They're going to put poor kids into some of the crummiest jobs that adults simply don't want to do because those kids are going to be desperate. And those are jobs that immigrants usually took. But since Republicans have cut that line off and, and now we're in this weird kind of who knows world, we could sit down and craft a piece of legislation and say, look, we, we, we want to have a certain amount of labor to come in and, and help at peak times. We want, to, we, want to, we want smart policy. We want to make sure that kids go to school and get the education that they need to have a lifetime of, of learning and a, an ability and, and don't waste the one opportunity that they're going to get to be able to make their lives better for their entire life. Not just to be able to survive today. And this is the frustrating part of all of this, especially as you look across the world where poverty is on the rise, inequality is on the rise, and, and the anger level is on the rise. And as we've talked about here on the program a couple, a couple of times, um, and I'm sure you've heard this before a couple of times, maybe you know a couple of hundred times, I don't know. But the, the fact of the matter is uh, we have a massively growing inequality problem here. And I don't know if you've noticed, but people are angrier. People are unhappy, not just with each other, but with their government. And there's a sense of, of anger and there's a sense of let's tear it all apart. And there's a sense of, hey, let's vote for the crazy guy. Let's vote for the guy who's telling us he's going to burn everything down. He's, he's going to go in and, and get, seek revenge and retribution for grievances of that are in his mind. 
But all of this stuff comes back to the simple reality that the growing inequality is growing into spaces that it hasn't been before. People that it didn't affect 50, 60, 70 years ago. It now solidly affects those working class communities that were getting by and doing fairly well thanks to the New Deal, thanks to strong labor unions, thanks to a manufacturing base that was right here at home. That you could, you could know that you worked hard, you played by the rules, you could get ahead, and that the next generation was going to be able to do the same and do just a little bit better. That was the birthright for a, a good majority of the people in this country. But most of the folks now are looking up going, I'm not, I'm not seeing it. Because we've got too many people at the top who are hoarding. Which is why, you know, I started off this 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 program at the beginning saying, look, you got you got these elites in, in Switzerland. They're having their little powwow. Uh, and they're talking about stakeholder capitalism. Talking about, you know, how are they going to, you know, how are they going to pursue policies that's going to be it's going to be share that's going to share more. And yet we haven't been more unequal in my lifetime than we are right now. And we haven't been more divided than we are right now. And look, you know, when I when I when I talk about these things, just to, you know, average voters to, to my Republican voting friends, they're with me. They don't want kids working in in slaughterhouses. They don't want kids having to go to work. They don't want to revert a hundred to a hundred years ago so families can make ends meet. They don't want that. They want kids to have the best opportunities that that the opportunities that they have to get an education. They want to make sure that every kid is is able to do that. Until you start going, well, what about those kids or those kids? And this is where in this country we've been easily, easily divided. Easily sliced and diced and pitted against each other. You know, I was listening to a right-wing commentator the other day, and he was saying, you know, you know, the, you know since the Civil War, you know, the, the elites, they, they, he sounded just like me. And, and, you know, he's like, you know, the country's, you know, yearning for, you know, someone to come along with a message to unite us. And I go, yeah, I, I agree. But I don't think it's the message that you think it's going to be. Understand, we're in a, we're in a weird spot. Because I, I talk to talk to people who are like, you know, I'm, I'm not thrilled with with what's going on in a lot of these red states, the policy stuff that's coming out of this stuff. I'm not thrilled with a lot of the stuff that's going on in blue states, some of the the, the fringe policy stuff. How do we move this back to the to the middle of the road back to I don't want I don't want kids being subjected to to, you know, a lot of the the extreme stuff. I want kids to be able to go to school, learn to read, write, learn to learn to play with their friends, learn to learn to learn to get along. Learn to solve problems, not be them. That's the question I have. And I want to hear I want to hear some solutions. Uh, I know politics is a huge part of it. And I have people say, well, you know, Rick, at the end of the day, you know, we need to have people who show up to the ballot box and, and they need to they need to vote. And I agree wholeheartedly. You know, if we had 60, you know, reasonable Democrats or 60 reasonable Republicans who are willing to vote on working class issues, okay. 
that has never happened in my lifetime. But I, you know, if if, if it, by by chance, you know, because you know this this right wing commentator was saying, you know, every bit of progress was because of Republicans. Republicans freed the slaves. Yeah, how many years ago was that? <laughs> Republicans did this. Um, yeah, how many years years ago was that? Do you not remember the Southern strategy? Do you not remember the kind of, you know, the Democrats you were talking about? You know, those Southern Democrats who were the, the slave Democrats, those are now Republicans. That, that's who's captured your party. So can we stop with the, you know, the Democrats were the party of the KKK and the slaves? They were back then. Yeah. Times change. So do people. I wouldn't associate with the with the Ku Klux Klan, or, or or anyone who would who would do those things. I wouldn't do it. But who is the Klan voting for now? Who were the white supremacists married up to? Oh, I don't know. For the four years that Trump was in the White House, I know it's convenient to say, "Well, history says, yeah," because it's true. And you're not going to you're not going to hear me deny it because it's true. But it's not now. So that's the, that's the fun and interesting part for me. I do want to hear your thoughts. Email me Rick at the Rick Smith show dot com. I'm going to take a quick break right back after this with more. Stick around. You're listening to the Rick Smith show. We're working people come to talk. Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1932. A very unusual army marched on Washington, D.C. Pro-labor Catholic priest Father James Renshaw Cox led the march. Father Cox had worked as a cab driver and steel worker before attending seminary and serving as a chaplain in World War I. After the war, as a pastor in Pittsburgh, he organized food assistance for those hit hard by the Great Depression. As the number of unemployed grew, Father Cox came up with a new plan to help the suffering in his city. He organized Cox's army. 25,000 Pennsylvanians who had lost their job due to the Great Depression. Cox led them from Pennsylvania to the nation's capital to demand a works program. Cox led them from Pennsylvania to the nation's capital to demand a public works program to put people back to work. The protest was the largest in Washington, D.C. up until that time. It was considered a great embarrassment to Republican President Herbert Hoover. Yet the president still did not move to provide government assistance. Such inaction helped to usher in the era of Democrat Franklin Delano Roosevelt's presidency, whose New Deal policies included public jobs programs. The protest also spawned a popular saying for women of that day. According to the Associated Press, the men of Cox's army ate 2,500 pounds of sauerkraut, 1,500 pounds of hot dogs, 11,000 apples, 650 gallons of soup, 450 loaves of bread, and 1,600 dozen of donuts and rolls during the protest. When cooking dinner for their families, women might explain, I made just enough food to feed Cox's army. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. Like us on Facebook and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two.
The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So here's a little bit of interesting analysis from the International Monetary Fund. Uh, Evidently, the IMF International Lender Group has said that uh, they believe uh, AI, artificial intelligence, will affect about 40% of the jobs around the world. And and here's the thing, and and maybe they've been listening. I don't know. Maybe this is one of those things that they've been they've been listening to the show, and they uh, uh, they said, "Hey, we better we better we better at least catch up to Rick." Um, they're saying that it's crucial that countries build a social safety net uh, to mitigate against the uh, the the, uh, the the job losses, uh, the vulnerable workers, the people who are gonna gonna lose their behinds over this. And and I've been saying for probably about ten years now that there needs to be a technology tax. Uh, when we have our trade deals, uh, when we had all those bad trade deals, uh, the NAFTAs, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the Colombias, the Panamas, all, all of that, when we, when we were doing all the, all the trade deals, they always put trade adjustment assistance in there uh, because they knew, hey, we're going to lose jobs. We always lose jobs in these trade deals. And so they set up kind of a little bit of a safety net to say, hey, when we lose the jobs, because we know we're going to lose the jobs, and when you know people you know end up you know broke, we got to help them. You know this is kind of you know a little a little sugar to help the medicine go down, kind of that 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 kind of that kind of theory. You know, so it, we're pretending like we're helping somebody. So this little bit of, of of assistance, which anybody who lost a job because of trade knows, it's just unemployment insurance for like two years. Uh, they help you get a little a little schooling, like at a community college or a trade school of some sort, uh, that never really you know get you the skills to get the wages you were earning, and um, and that's about it. Uh, no real health care, no real uh, anything to help you not lose your home or fall far behind. And because remember, unemployment insurance is only about 40% uh, the replacement of what you were making. So I don't know about you, but I would find it very hard to live on 40% of my income. Uh, so even even with that, it wasn't, it really wasn't helpful. Um, but I was saying at least it was something. And it did help a little bit for some people. What's happening now with, with robotics and AI and all of this, this tech turnover, as tech is taking over and as we're, uh, we're, we're moving into the brave new world, I've been saying you know, for about a decade that you know, can, can this be the transition where workers don't get screwed? Because every time we've had one of these these changeovers, you know, from buggy whips to to automobiles or you know whatever, whatever that techno- technological shift was, workers took it on the chin. Uh, workers' skills were outdated, and they were left left on the side of the road. And and I, and look, I'm a truck driver. You know, at the end of the day, I know at some point very soon in my lifetime there will be automated trucks on the road taking jobs from from people like me. It's going to happen. And you've got to be cognizant of the fact that it's going to happen. And I, I said, like 10 years ago, I said, uh, we need to get ahead of this, understand it's going to happen, understand it's probably a good thing uh, as a whole to ensure that we have enough truck drivers, 
uh, that we have enough, you know, transportation, uh, that, you know, roads might be safer. I don't know. I can't, I'm not going to guarantee that. Um, but I get it. You know, technology, you're not going to stop it. I'm not a Luddite. We're not going to smash the machines. Uh, it's coming. It's going to happen. You've got to mitigate the pain. And I said a technology tax would help do that. And what you what you do in this is anybody who is a truck driver, anyone who holds a CDL, uh, when they lose their job, uh, they're red circled. And who whatever company replaces them with whatever technology, you tax that technology across the board. If you institute a, a driverless vehicle, there's a tax associated with that. And that tax goes into a fund that when those those drivers lose their jobs, they're made whole, not 40 percent. But they're made whole because like it or not, believe it or not, the chances of retraining a 55, a 60 year old guy or woman to be able to do another career that's going to pay them fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year with benefits, um, probably not going to happen and not going to happen for a while. Not saying it is not saying it's impossible, saying it's probably not likely. So in, to ease that pain and suffering and the, you know, to be honest, the violence and the, and the anger that would come from a million plus uh, truck drivers who are heavily armed from losing their livelihoods, um, this, would, this would help be the sugar that helps the, the medicine go down. But doing that across the board, yes, you're going to make technology more expensive, but you're going to also make the transition easier for working people to for to, to be able to make that transition so that people don't lose their homes, families don't end up homeless, all, all of the societal ills that come with this kind of a transition. Because, look, we know out of this you're going to make billionaires. You're going to make gazillionaires because we've already got them. Look at the mass inequality we already have. As we make this technological shift from actual workers to robotics and automation, that that wealth transfer is going to get even bigger. And this is where we need to have, oh, I don't know, visionary leaders, functional leaders, competent leaders, leaders who are willing to do, oh, I don't know, something. And I think this is what the guy, what the folks at the International Monetary Fund saying. I'm not a huge fan of the IMF, not even a little bit. But sometimes a blind squirrel finds a nut and saying, look, um, you got to provide a safety net for folks who are, who are at the margins. Uh, when they're negatively affected by these job losses, you got to be able to ensure that they're going to be able to feed themselves or you're going to have chaos. And I know there are some who are saying, well, good, we need chaos. we got, we got private prisons to fill in the most Dickinsonian way possible, possibly said. So for me, this is where the politics, again, comes back down to all of us. 40% of the jobs in this, in this, on this planet will be affected by AI. 40%. Let that sink in for a minute. Think about how bad, how bad that could be if we don't have a safety net, if we are not prepared and preparing. And I argue we're already well, well behind the eight ball. I argue we're already too late for this. And it's time for us to, I don't know, just catch up just a little bit. want to hear your thoughts, though. Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Should we be talking about this? Should we be moving on it? I think so. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you back here next time. 
been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick, Email Rick. at rick at thericksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.